Welcome back to Glory Days Podcast, an episode B of the Griffith Black and Whites Rugby League Club's 100-year anniversary. This episode covers the period from 1980 to 2021. We'll chat with players and officials who have guided the club through the last four decades of its 100 years. A massive thank you to the proud and loyal sponsors, the Griffith Leaks Club, for making this episode possible. But at the dog ground, we'd have barbecues over the dog ground. Jimmy Roll would always sing the song. Where we come from, who we are. And Bobby Bill's favourite song was, Heart of my life. Bring back those memories. And you fall over about seven or eight times. But that was around a fire at the back of the dog ground. And even in that, to this day, I still, those words and those songs and those memories stick in my head. And I... I know where I come from. You know, I come from bloody Griffith, the black and whites, and I'm proud of it. Oh, look, I just think from a club perspective, time I spent there, very family and orientated type committee. People have been with the club for a long, long time in the committee space. Um, and then on the playing side, probably blokes that I suppose I played with the black and whites after sort of coming, playing junior football and grew 20 my, my whole life. Uh, blokes I probably played against for pretty much my whole career and then was lucky enough to spend the last three or four years actually playing with them and just got a bunch of really good mates sort of stuck together fairly thick and thin ever since. Yeah, it's not sort of where you've just played for a club and sort of moved on. Um, even to this day, pretty much all those blokes from that period of time I'm, I'm fairly close with. 100 years there's just so obviously obviously so much history there and it's just great I mean black and whites mean so much to so many and when you start to look back in, in our family and with my brother and myself playing football there together and my father played football there and you know that's we're not the only ones there's heaps of families that have done the same thing and black and white over the years just such a proud club and such very proud to be a part of that club and and you know was, when we were a kid it was something that you always aspired to and when you get there it's just how good Welcome back to episode B of the Griffith Black and Whites Rugby League Club 100 Years. We pick it up at the start of the 1980 season. A new decade and a new coach with Frank Roddy appointed coach in 1980. He went on to play 10 matches for Canberra Raiders during the 1982 and 83 seasons. After just one year, he was replaced by Canterbury-Bankstown player John Abbott, who had played 10 matches with the Berries in 1979 after having played in two premierships with East in Brisbane Rugby League. He only did the one year before Terry McCartney, another ex-Canterbury-Bankstown player, was appointed for two seasons in 1983. The 80s proved to be a lean time for the Black and Whites, with just two under-16 premierships in 1980 and 1983, the only silverware into the cabinet. Wayne Alpin, who played in the 1990 Premiership and coached the club for three years in 92, 93 and 96, played in the under-16 Premiership and recalls the win. I think as a kid, everyone aspired to play uh, play black and whites or Waratahs, depending on which side of town you grew up. And we were just lucky. Like, we came out of school with a lot of guys that we played against each other in school and got to 16s. And there was a guy by the name of Evan Davis. He was a teacher at, at Griffith High. He coached black and whites under 16s at that time, pulled a pretty good team together. So not didn't necessarily pick the eyes out of the different schools, but more um, we were just fortunate that year that all the kids wanted to go to black and white, which was great. 
you know, we played Luton in the grand final over in Luton and we beat them by, I think it was eight points or something, reasonably comfortable in the end, but it was a reasonably tight game. Ended the season undefeated. Great memories. There were a fair few guys that played that year that went on to play with various clubs in first grade. Guys like Michael Scafani, Glenn Dawson. Michael Scafani, he was our front rower, and even at 15, he was probably big enough to play first grade. You know, great year, and as I said, to go through undefeated with, um, with a, a bunch of guys. And Evan Davis, unfortunately, he was a great fellow. He's passed away, but great fellow and really treated the kids like men, which I think was the big difference. And, um, yeah, we managed to snap all the grand final that year, so it was great. Front row forward Brian Cook, who had played seven games for Western Suburbs between 1979 and 80, was appointed coach for the 84 and 85 seasons, where they made the finals in both years, only to lose in the semi-finals. Cook was a very popular clubman. In 1980, he was number 162 on the popular Scanlon's Chewing Gum Rugby League player cards. Mick Pittman, who played 61 games for Newtown, including the 1981 grand final loss to Parramatta and 19 games for Canterbury in 1983, was appointed coach for 1986, having been in Newcastle the two previous years. Pittman played in the famous Round 5 game in 1982 when Newtown and Canterbury played out a nil-all draw at Henson Park. Ex-St George player Michael McClintock did one year coaching stint in 1987. Ross Morell, who had come up through the junior ranks and played in six grand finals for the Black and Whites during the 70s, was appointed coach in 1988. He was assisted by John Soups Campbell, who had also played in six grand finals for the club. Ross Morell also coached in 1989. Glenn Dawson was awarded the Group 20 Player of the Year. At the end of the 1989 season, Black and White's president, Joe Sergi, was already making moves to take the club to the next level. Sergi was in talks with Ray Schaefer, a successful coach in Group 17, about making the move to Group 20, as Ray Schaefer explains found me way to be coached in the 1990 season because I was coaching out at Group 17 at the time and I had a good stint with Hilston winning three premierships so I decided I wanted to come in and coach a Group 20 club. At the end of 88, I met up with Joe Sergi, the president of the Black and Whites, made a deal with me to come and play in 1989 as captain under Ross Morell who was coaching with the option of taking over the first grade position in 1990. That's how it turned out in the end and I took on the position as captain coach. The plan worked to perfection, with Schaefer's appointment in 1990 as coach, bringing the Black and Whites their first premiership in 15 years, as Schaefer explains how it unfolded and how they overcome some injuries on the big day. Uh, we got to that next level by um, having a very successful side of local players, with uh, only one import being Tony Payton, who came from Cronulla, and uh, he was a good steady hand and having all the experience he had. And within the club itself, was pretty uh, family orientated. I had three sets of brothers playing in first grade, which made it easy for me. We had the Kavanagh boys playing half and five eight in Vincent Cole. Alpen boys playing in the centres, Wayne and Bill. And in the forwards, I had Bill Smith and his brother Brian. But also, we had a very strong reserve grade, who also went on to make the reserve grade grand final that year, going down to Leeton. Having a strong reserve grade side always kept the players in first grade on their toes. I was a pretty strict coach. Um, I was into my fitness back then and the team was very fit. I always said fitness overcomes size even when you're behind. I was probably uh, a bit of a strong 
fitness fanatic back in the day. So I believe that was a strong part of winning the premiership. Ray, did you lose any games during that season or was it an undefeated? No, we did lose a couple of games during the year, which to me, losing games makes it better for you at the end. Well, I've seen a lot of teams go through undefeated over years and to lose a big one, so I'd rather lose a game in the year than lose a big one. Yeah, unfortunately, I had to leave the field after about 20 minutes into the grand final. First injury was probably 10 minutes or so before the biggest injury, and I didn't know it was injured. I bloody collided knees with an opposition player, fractured my kneecap, which I didn't know about till the next day. I stayed out there, but five or 10 minutes later, I went to tackle Mick Lewis, who was air captain coach, and he was the front rower. And unfortunately, my arm went between his legs when I was making the tackle, fractured it in three places. Uh, I had the strappers come out and strap me up. Fortunately, after Vince Cavanagh scored his second try, they decided to kick it off straight to where I was, and I dropped it on the try line, which led to their first try. I knew straight away then that I had to go off the field and uh, replace myself with somebody else. Well, the ladies that were there wanted to take me off to hospital, but I was a very strong-headed kind of person, and being the captain coach, I wasn't going anywhere. I sat on the sideline for 60 minutes, and even when the boys fell behind, I believe we could still win the game. And it was probably the most nerve-wracking 60 minutes of my football career. But uh, I stayed there and watched the whole game out, and the boys uh, come up trumps. Not long after myself going off, Wayne Alpin come off with busted ribs. So that was two key players out of the game. Uh, Half-time, I told the boys that they'd been the best team all year and that we knew we could beat these blokes when we did fall behind through the leadership of Vince Kavner, Tony Payton and a couple of young stars, rising stars like Stephen Parr at fullback. The boys progressed and got over the line to win the grand final for us. Wayne Alpin ended up in hospital in the 1990 grand final and he reflects on the game as well. 1990 was a massive build-up for us, uh, given we hadn't won the grand final since uh, 75. Club had recruited pretty well. Ray Schaefer was our coach. We had a really strong year. We probably went into that, that grand final against West Wyland as slight favourites, and we come out firing. You know, I think we were up by 14 after 20 minutes. Schaefer, Vince Kavanagh, Cole Kavanagh, um, guys were, were carving up Stephen Parr, and all of a sudden the wheels fell off a little bit. Schaefer broke his arm after about 20 minutes. Like, Schaefer, tough bugger when he played pound for pound one of the toughest uh, that I played with in Group 20. Always led by example. We made the grand final in 90, of course, where we won it, and then 91 the year after, and he was instrumental in getting you know, getting us to both of those just by the way he led the team, which was, you know, unfortunately couldn't get away with the broken arm in that game and went off just before halftime. I tore rib cartilage and, and went off as well. I was a bit bit of a sook. They took me off to hospital, but Shay stayed. <laughs> because they were concerned that I'd actually broken ribs and you end up with a punctured lung or something like that. But, you know, it was just one of those things. But, I oh, look, a really tough game. They came back in the first half and uh, we were, said we were up by 14 after 20 minutes and then they led by two at half time. You know, but our guys just really got stuck in the second half and went on to win by six points. But, you know, our forwards had to really step up. You know, guys like Brian and Billy Smith and Jack Draskovic, Russell McCann, Paul Davern, who came on for, um, for Shafe when he went off. The Wyland boys were really, they just belted us. Mick Lewis was their captain coach. He got sent off for 10, I think, just before half time, but they came out and absolutely wanted to belt our pack. But the guys just toughed it out. How did you find out the final result? If you're down at the hospital or whatever, were you listening on radio or something? Or because obviously you know no no mobile phones or anything then, so it was it was the radio. So I was in 
getting checked out, asking the question, and yeah, had the radio going in the background. Yeah, jump, jumping around and just wanted to get out of there when we won. When did you get yeah. back to the ground or the or the venue, mate? Oh no, I went straight to the league sub. That was played at Yenda, so by the time they all got back into town, you know, it was uh, it was party time. The three sets of brothers in that team: Brian and Billy Smith, and Vincent Cole Kavanagh, and then my brother uh, Bill and I. So great to win a grand final with uh, with him after. 25 years so I oh, look good celebrations afterwards as you can imagine I had a really good memory of my mother and, and Peter Payne you know as I mentioned the father's old mate dancing on one of those still tables yeah it was uh, it was a fair celebration but of course we had to go to work the next day we were never allowed to have a day off you know so <laughs> great year that one in 1991, despite finishing minor premiers, Narendra won a thrilling grand final by two points, with mistakes costing the black and whites the chance of going back to back. Glenn Dawson won his second Group 20 Player of the Year award. Wayne Alpin took over from Schaefer and was appointed coach for 1992 and 93. 1992 was a heartbreaking one point loss in the grand final, which turned out to be their opponent, Yanko Wamoon's first of five consecutive premierships. Alpin said the side was very unlucky in defeat. I was coaching 92 to go from Schaaf in uh, 92 and 93, but we had some great guys in our team again, some great memories, particularly game against Yanko. To this day, I think that we were extremely unlucky. We were the better team that, on the day that lost the game, unfortunately, but we had played a great game. We sort of missed a few chances here and there, but we, we were on top by about five with 15 minutes to go, and they were completely spent. Our boys were gaining momentum, and we were just we were just coming home on top of them. But unfortunately, one of their guys, Chris Sheldrick, I think he was I think he played hooker. He went down with a pretty awkward tackle on our prop, Jimmy Vitucci, and that stopped the game for 15 to 20 minutes and took him away in an ambulance. He ended up okay, but um, time off just brought them right back into it. They got some, some energy back, and we lost a bit of momentum for a short period, and it wasn't soon after we uh, got back into it that they scored out wide. I think it was about 10 to go, and their fullback, Andrew Reynolds, who didn't think he would land it, but landed one from the sideline and put him up by one point. So, you know, about I don't know, 8 or 10 to go, and we, we had the line share of the ball. We didn't have a lot of chances but there were you know, a couple of slight chances we had there and I thought we'd won it winger Tony Pope and he'd scored out wide and I still believe he scored but we're about probably about two minutes ago I reckon but he was called back for going into touch so whether he did or not I'm not sure but uh, you know it's one of those things you know it's all history and uh, unfortunately he did his ACL uh, at the time so uh, that was hard for him to take as well all, all wasn't lost we uh, our resis beat Waratahs after the bell that day yeah the siren we, we got a penalty just before the siren our, our, our resi goal kicker was off the field so my, my brother Bill who hadn't kicked a goal all year stepped up and toe poked one over the after the siren so <laughs> always good to always good to beat the Tars you know so <laughs> Terry Regan was one of the best ever players to play at the Black and Whites, and not only a great player, but a real character and larrikin. Wayne Alpin, who coached him, tells a couple of good old Rego stories. Coached in uh, 93, we had Terry Regan playing with us, and you can't have a season without a funny story with Rego. And in all my time, I don't think I'd ever gone to the judiciary, but I, I, I attended the judiciary three times that year, but only as a, as coach of Terry Regan because uh, he'd been sent off three times. It was quite interesting. The chairman of the judiciary committee, Tommy Armour, used to have to go to the end of Diggers Club to the judiciary, and I'm pretty sure that we uh, we wore a path from the car park to the meeting room over that year to the point 
bloke where um, at the end, Rigo and Tommy were, were pretty good mates. But it's funny because each time Tommy would ask Rigo, you know, as, he, as he'd sit down around the table and Terry, if you've got any legal representation, and Rigo would respond the same each time, you know, like, no, Tommy, I'm representing myself and I'm innocent. The, the comeback was the same. I remember the last one, though, particularly, which was um, the semi-final against Yanko and Rigo had been sent off for biting Phil Luby on the finger. We got into the dishery, uh, into the committee, and we sat down and went through the same old line. And then Rigo's first line of defence that he was, you know, he actually wore a mouth guard during that game, and it was it was not possible for him to uh, to leave bite marks on on Lube's finger. Tommy then suggested to Terry that the referee had already indicated he had no mouth guard on that day. So uh, so then he um, <laughs> then he proceeded to explain to Tommy that he actually had a locked jaw condition. It was unavoidable reaction when something was being placed in his mouth and Phil should be found guilty of putting his finger in his mouth. (laughs) 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 Needless to say, uh, yeah, Rego lost that one as well. He had had a history of antics and it was funny when he'd come back to play with us, he had this pre-game ritual that he used to drink a bit of green ginger wine and sherry before a game. Anyway, the first game that we lobbed up in the black and white dressing room and he's got this bottle of this concoction that he used to make up and he's walking around the dressing shed and revving the boys up. Come on, boys, you know, we'll get in. He'd take a big swig of his concoction of, and then he would start ranting again and he'd go again, have another big swig. And by the end of the warm-up, he's finished the, the whole bottle, you know. Anyway, this lasted a couple of weeks. And one of the boys at training came up to me during the week and said, listen, you know, just pull me aside and said, listen, a few of us have been chatting. We're not real comfortable with what's going on the dressing check there with Riga, you know, with him getting stuck into that ginger wine and sherry. So I said, oh, look, no worries, I'll have a chat to him. So I grabbed Rigo and Rigo's favourite saying was, oh, mate, I know where you're coming from, you know, and in a gravelly voice. So I grabbed him and, and said, listen, you know, same thing, a few of the boys are just not real comfortable with it. Oh, hey, listen, I know where you're coming from, mate. Take it as good as finished, you won't have to worry about it again. No worries, that sounds good, like easy gun, no problem. That weekend we get in the dressing shed and he's ranting and raving and carrying, come on boys, let's get into it, yeah, we're going to get stuck in. And then he'd race over to his bag and he had the jar of green ginger wine and sherry in this brown paper. He'd take a massive swig, put it back in his bag and then start ranting and getting to the boys. Away we go. <laughs> Well, Terry Regan, the man himself, tells a story from his first grade debut and another from the same season at the Black and Whites in the late 70s. I can always remember my first game for the Black and Whites. We played down at Yanko. There's a bloke in our side called Peter Jepp and there's an opposition player playing for Yanko and his name was Bill Alberti. Now, Bill was a bit of a cheeky little hooker. All of a sudden, Jeppo's taken the ball up and he's got tackled and he's jumped up and threw the ball at this Bill Alberti didn't call him some words I'd hate to bring up now. And all of a sudden, Bill Alberti started running. And I mean running. I don't blame him. It's the first time I've seen Bill Alberti run. And Jeppo's after him, call him every son of a bitch of a name that you can think of. And the game had to stop. And Bill Alberti ran off the field, over the fence, up into the hills with his own supporters. And you know what? Jeppo followed him. He leaped over there and got up in that hill and punched the shit out of Bill Alberti. Now, they both got sighted. And I asked I said, what happened? He said, the dirty rotten bastard spat in me face. That was my first grade yay burn. I saw it. We had to stop the game for about five or ten minutes while we waited for bloody Jeppo and Bill Alberti up on the hill somewhere at Yanko. Now we're into it. I'll tell you another funny thing that happened. Playing to the black and white. This is my first year. And down there at the dog ground, 
we are all there having a good time, you know, out in the paddock. It was a game we should have won, but we were getting a touch-up. Blake and Jellico will give us this dust-up. Mostly, it made about five minutes to go. The score was something like 36 to 14 or something. You know, we, were, we were just standing behind the goalpost. They've just scored a try. Blake's got their heads down. We said, well, how would we stuff this game up? And out of the blue, me mum, God love her, up behind the goalpost, and she yells out, when everything's dead quiet, she says, Terry, we won the raffle. Well, I'll be with you. <laughs> That's all I had to hear was from my lovely mum up with Coffin and Flogging, five minutes to go, behind the goalpost, dead silence. Terry, we won the raffle. And you know what those football so called mates from me done with while we're going back up the kickoff? They're all just saying to me, Terry, we won the raffle. They're all saying it to me. I said, You are you right? Are you saying anything? <laughs> Former Leeton player Graeme Stockton coached in 1994 with David Blomfield leading the club in 95. Blomfield took out the Group 20 Player of the Year award in 95. Wayne Alpin returned to coach in 1996, helping out a talented junior group coming through to the senior ranks. The retention committee, headed up by Rob Stevenson, signed Scott Donnelly in 1997. Donnelly, however, sustained a broken wrist in the annual Doug Alpin Challenge pre-season match at the Rugby Oval. The club and Donnelly agreed on mutual terms to terminate the coaching contract. Mick Elliott, who had along with his brother Steve been recruited to the club from Batemans Bay, was appointed to take over the reins of the side. After four tough years, things hit rock bottom in 1997 when the club fell to the bottom of the ladder. They were financially crippled owing money to various sponsors. Led by President John Bonetti, the rebuild started on and off the field, as Bonetti explains. 1998, I took over as president in 96. The club was virtually on its knees. I'd be chasing sponsorship and they'd say to me, yeah, look, it's not a problem to sponsor the club, but it wouldn't hurt, it wouldn't hurt if they paid the bills that have been here for three years. I'd walk down the street, people would say to me, uh, you know, the club owes me $400 and then I'd work a bit further and you'd run into somebody else and they say, the club owes me $1,000. So we basically got on top of the financial problem. A bloke called Chris Brennan come along and he was in the mould of uh, Rob Adamson, very fit. We had a really good side. Yeah, we went to uh, 1998 and beat Yanko Amin in the grand final. Again, as I, even if I've got to say so myself, having dug the club out of, you know, the poos and then to win a premiership, that was also a major highlight. Because I'm a success man, I hate failures. At any stage I have a success, I chalk it up as an achievement. In a funny old way, despite not playing in it, but being president, it was very comparable to what you were able to achieve in 1975? Yes, very much so. Like I said, along the same lines, again, that theme of achieving things, uh, having put together this this side, uh, Chris Bennon come to the club from Bega. He was a winner and we still keep in touch. He still rings every Christmas day and we have a, and along the lines of 75, it took another half back to do it, but we did it and uh, we move on. A key player in the recovery operation alongside John Bonetti and Alistair Watt was Rob Stevenson, whose grandfather Bob Stevenson played in the early years of the club, while his father Jeff was a life member. The family history played a big part in his desire to lift the club on and off the field, and he explains this and the situation the club had found itself in during the mid to late 90s. Many years back, my grandfather was a 
pretty handy footballer back in the pre-grip 20 years. He sort of made the team of the century. My dad was sort of a long-term committee man, and a now life member. So I was sort of around the club as a young bloke pretty early on and then joined up on the committee. At, no, it might have been 97 when John Benetti took over there. I'd try and give him a hand when the club was battling there for a little bit and then went on to take over the presidency from John when he stood down and done that for a few years and then vice president when Johnny Sutherland took over later on in the 2000s. Finished up 2008. Everybody's used by date comes up I suppose and uh, nowadays just a supporter and a sponsor. Business still helps them out financially a little bit when they ring up and see what we can do and always been around the club. And yeah well early in the 90s the black and whites were very successful. They won 90 and then they were in the grand final in 91 and again in 92 and if you put those sides together even though a lot of them were local guys it still cost a lot of money and a lot of those guys got old I suppose and moved on and the money wasn't there to continue on and ended up look like you know not that it was ever going to fold it I think the black and white but they got down financially and for players and things like that so that's when I'm John Benetti and Alistair Watt decided to do a bit of ring around and join up and get a few guys together and try and pick the place up again it's a hell of a lot of steak sandwiches and chook raffles to keep those grand final winning sides on the park you know they just don't last forever So just how did Stevenson and the committee get hold of Chris Brennan, who was a very successful coach and player? Chris wasn't that hard to convince, actually. We had heard on the grapevine that he was interested in moving from down at Eden there. He'd done what he pretty much could down there. He won a couple of grand finals in a row. and So I just gave him a call and explained to him what we were about and everything like that and got him up for a weekend and he had a bit of a good time up here and enjoyed the town and he could see what what we were trying to what we were trying to build here and basically within a week he'd made a decision that he wanted to come up and away way we went. He brought a good bit of professionalism with him and we done a, an amazing job that season. It wasn't only him, we found a few other really good footballers and Donnie Matheson had arrived in town and Andrew Kennedy had switched clubs over to us and Steve Parr had returned back to the black and whites and we also had a heap of good young local kids and a lot of guys like Don Hassan and Matty Bruce that have been playing for years, and they, they were all silly nucleus of the side, but just add those extra few in and a, and a really good coach and it turned the place around, you know. Brennan was quickly impressed by what he had seen and heard, as he explains. Down at Eden, I just finished a two-year contract down there and was going to move on. So I got in the car and drove about eight hours out the grip. Got there and, and Robert Stevenson um, showed me around the place. And then we went to a meeting and we sat down. We, we spoke for about an hour. I thought the interview went really, really well. It blew me away how many people were actually on their committee. They were a really progressive club. Slept on it that night, Gemini. Next morning, I got a, a phone call from Robert and John Benetti and, and Robert Stevenson outside saying, look, we've got lucky to really sign the contract now. So look, I'll, I'll think about it and I'll, I'll get back to you in about a week. But as I drove home and, and thinking of all the, the pluses around, you know, the town and, and the people and, you know, the progress of the club, probably got to Canberra and, I, you know, I was just really, really impressed. So, yeah, about a week went past and, and I signed. Brennan's main focus was around culture and fitness to see the club rise up the ladder. Oh, look, I straight away got to build a culture. The whole club to have the same culture and the, I want to change their culture. Not that I thought it was a negative one, but we had to train hard. But one of the things I noticed straight away is that they're averaging something like 24 points against. Look, if we can halve that, you know, we only have to score two or three tries and we win most of our game. So we focused a lot. And I'm massive on, on fitness. I felt that if we're the fittest side in the comp, we're going to be right up there. You know, we did buy well. Uh, Matheson, Parr, 
um, Andrew Kennedy, you know, was one of the best footballers I played with in the bush. And we had a couple of kids come up. Grant Delboy went to hooker, who normally was playing halfback. Yeah, we got down, at the end of the year, we got down to 11 points per game, you know, and we only lost two games. But 11 points was, you know, you're going to win most games. That was massive for us, and that was the turnaround. And that comes down to attitude and discipline and desire. You know, you win games on your defence, and you know we weren't a big scoring side either. But our, you know, our defence certainly won won us the competition and most of our games. But and in the grand final, you know, Yanko only scored, I think, in the last five minutes of the grand final, where they were averaging about 40 points a game. You know, we worked really hard in our fitness and our, our discipline in our defence and certainly that's what won us, you know, the competition that year. Another player who made his way to the club was front row forward Don Matheson, who was a massive fan of Brennan's coaching and reflected back on the grand final lead-up and on game day. Probably goes back to the 1975 grand final. Lake Jellygo and Black and Whites played in some grand finals. Um, Lake won their first uh, Group 20 grand final ever in history against Black and Whites. And I think the clubs have had a pretty reasonably close association ever since. You know, even to today, when they play, they usually have a catch-up with old boys and they've had quite function over the years. So um, I was in Lake Jellygo. I moved to Griffith I mean, mid-97. Work sort of always came first, so I actually decided to retire at the end of 97. And then Alistair Watt approached me one day at Bank that I was working at, basically asked if I was interested. Spoke to uh, Huckle Blacker, who's a legend of the late club, and basically said, what do you think, Huck? And he said, well, mate, I don't mind you playing football again as long as you don't play for Waratahs, because Waratahs were fairly disliked in the group at the time. Big spenders, and yeah, no one particularly liked them. And Huckle basically said, look, mate, if you're going to play football, um, we're happy if you play for black and whites. Pretty much how it ended up. Yeah, I didn't really even consider going and playing there else. What sort of Huckle said was the way it was going to be. So um, I ended up at black and whites. Club had had some really tough years, really post-92. Coach that they happened to pick up, probably one of the best coaches or probably the best coach that I've ever been coached by. And just a bunch of players that sort of come from, you know, just seemed to fall together that there was blokes coming back from being who'd been up the coast living and everyone sort of rocked up at the same time. And the year ended up being probably a lot more successful. I think the aim was to probably not win the wood burning initially. It ended up being a very successful year. So, Donny, the year before did... Where did the black and whites finish in 97? They were either the wooden spooners or second last, pretty well down the bottom of the table. I do recall, I think we beat them about 60-odd to two in the last competition game. So, no, they had a real struggle in 97. What made Chris such a successful coach? What was his secret? He's just a very, very smart footballer in his own right. Probably long way ahead of his time in country football in terms of the amount of work he was prepared to do as a coach. You know, like down to, he'd send um, people off to, you know, video games of other sides that were playing and he'd know other teams inside out before we even played them. Strategy and a, and a game plan against every side. And just stuff that, you know, really for country football probably wasn't the norm, but he had to put in a lot of time and effort. Our coaching perspective, I think he won two Clayton's Cups in two different groups. Look, over the period of his coaching career, I'd say he's probably, you count the amount of actual games he lost on his hands, I'd say. Very, very successful. Multiple premierships in multiple groups. Very passionate and just prepared to put the time in. Exceptional footballer as well in his own right. I think he played country first uh, halfback after coming out of like the Balmain sort of junior system. So yeah, no, very good footballer as well. 
fair bit of pressure. We were the minor premiers, you know, which had sort of been a long way from the previous year. Uh, we had a really good coach who had a good reputation. Played Yenko, who were on a roll. I think they came from fifth spot and they hadn't lost a game for nine, ten weeks in a row. We had some, some really serious problems in terms of actual team selection. Don Hassan, who actually won the best and fairest that year for our club, had his jaw broken in the last home and away game. Didn't know whether he was going to play or whether he was going to be right to play. Andrew Kennedy hadn't played for six or eight weeks. He had a broken leg, so I didn't know whether he was going to play. So probably in the lead-up, it was a lot about what the actual team was going to look like. And, you know, a couple of very high-quality footballers. That, yeah, so at the end of the day, uh, Hasse, yeah, couldn't get a clearance to play because of his jaw. Uh, Kenna did end up playing. Yeah, it was a, it was a really tight game. It was, but I think there might have been two or four points in it at the end. Pretty close game. Given off the role that Yanko had been on and some of the adversity we'd had leading up to it, it was a pretty good result. I'd always wanted to win Group 20 because I started in Group 20 as a junior, so probably one of the main aims to actually win a Group 20 grand final. A lot of the blokes I played with, like Jellico, pretty much played the whole career and never got to do that. It's pretty special. And celebrations, well, <laughs> can't remember too much. I do know what I'm for a bit. I think I, I think we finished the following Friday. Pretty serious in terms of celebrations, for sure. After an unlucky preliminary final loss in 1999, Chris Brennan completed his two years and was replaced by former Aubrey player Todd Huggins as coach in 2000. Then Chris Marlin was appointed coach for the 2001 and 02 seasons. Marlin was a former Western Suburb player where on his senior debut played in the club's last ever win in 1999 before they folded and merged with Balmain to become the West Tigers. Many within the club rated the teams under Marlon as as good as any, but did not translate into premiership success at senior level. The reserve grade did in 2002, and they defeated Leeton 24-16 in the grand final at Griffith Rugby Oval. The club appointed Chris Matthew as coach in 2003, and then Jason Austin, formerly from North Sydney, for the 2004 season. The under-18s completed a superb season, winning the grand final against Waratahs 40-22. In the same year, all four sons of John Bonetti, Mark, Simon, Kristen and Greg, played in a game against Yenda. Yeah, Simon was the second year back from playing in a premiership in Sydney. He played in that in 2002. 2004, we ran in again on the theme of better teams and better players. We ran into the Yenda, Yenda Blue Heelers, who had the three Richards boys playing, Trevor, Chris and Steve. And I still remember a good friend of mine supports Yenda. And I said, you take those three out of Yenda and put them in any other group, 20 side, they will win the premiership. That's how dominant those three players were. Those having the three Richards boys playing against the four Bonetti boys at times. Yep, yep. Although, like I said, apart from Simon, the other three were good players, but they're really not in the Richards class. And Simon sort of suffered an injury in the first five minutes. He, he hit uh, Trevor Richards' hip and uh, was sort of in cuckoo land. And so we, we really did it tough on the day and got beaten fairly easily, if I remember correctly. Born and bred in Griffith, Simon Bonetti played 142 games in six seasons with the Roosters and appeared in two premiership deciders for them. The loss to Brisbane in the 2000 NRL Grand Final and the win over the New Zealand Warriors in 2002. He retired from the Roosters after winning the 2002 Grand Final. Jason Fuller, who played in the 1998 Premiership, led the club in 2005 and 2006. He took out the Group 20 Player of the Year in 2005. 
A member of the 2005 side was a young 18-year-old, Lewis Brown, who went on to play for New Zealand in 15 test matches. Brown racked up 198 NRL games at three clubs, New Zealand Warriors, Penrith and Manly. Rob Stevenson says the Group 20 competition was very strong in that period, with Yenda in particular dominating, playing in 10 of the first 11 grand finals of the new millennium, winning seven of them. Geez, that was a good era, the 2000s for Yenda there. Like they, I think they won five grand finals and played in an 11, you know, through that era, so it was very hard to win. But we had some good sides and they were just better, you know. There was a lot of good sides in that era. We were still very competitive all, all, all the way through that early 2000s. We were, we were a really competitive side. We didn't win any competitions, but all four grades were competitive every year and were financial. And I think that was a bit of a fine line in that era when you're trying to beat a, a really good side that you had to be competitive for your sponsors and supporters and that sort of stuff, but not break the bank either. So that's what we're trying to do. Was, you know, it was, um, it was very hard to beat them. So you just have to just stick in and hopefully they're unfinished, but it took a long time to finish. Why ever they had the Richards brothers and that nucleus of a side that they, they were just as good a country rugby league side getting around for a lot of years, that team of theirs. But I still class that as a pretty successful run. I know we didn't win things, but we were sort of up there in the top two or three or four in, in every grade, you know, we were up competing in the club championships and things like that, but just, uh, and financial, that was the main thing. It was a pretty tough time and during those 2000s. The club wasn't, police club wasn't flying. We weren't getting any any major rebates or anything back from them. We were doing a lot of raffles and outside sourcing of money and things like that. So, like I said, it was a pretty fine line. If you're, you're tailing off at the bottom and that sort of stuff, it's pretty hard to go and knock on somebody's door and ask for sponsorship and uh, for money. So we always tried to be competitive and do what we could to, to, you know, to be up there, you know, without buying two or three ex-NRL players, you'll pretty much no chance of beating that side. You know, no. we're always competitive against them, but they, they, they were just too good. Terry Clune was appointed coach in 2007. While in a significant move, Group 20 introduced league tag to accommodate the growing interest in women's rugby league. It started off with the game being played under Oztag rules and played on a smaller field for the first two years. It was a wonderful opportunity for the clubs within the competition to get females participating and involved with their clubs. What a debut season it was for Griffith. The girls defeating Leeton in the grand final 2-1 on their home ground to etch their names and club into the history books with Jada Anderson and Marta Barassia dominating. The side was coached by Graham Webb and Rodney Eid. Leeton reversed the result in the 2008 grand final winning 4-2. The game evolved in 2009, playing on a full field and under the name of League Tag. The girls adapted well and made it through to the grand final, only to be beaten by Leeton 3-0. The League Tag side was a shining light in a dim 2013 season when they made the grand final. They repeated this effort in 2017 and then capped off years of consistency with a premiership in 2018. The stunning 36-18 win over Hay was a record score in a grand final. Shailene Williams, who has been at the club since League's Tag's inception, spoke about the impact it has had on the club and her. I've always been involved in black and white since a young girl, you know, all our, a lot of our fathers, uncles played there. So League Tag, I think now and out here in the country, it's it's very big. We had a very many rough years there and 
we sort of, the girls carried on now the legacy of, of the black and white, very proud to be involved in the black and whites because, you know, we were one of the oldest clubs in Australia and it's an honour. I remember one day particularly we were at Leeton and, and us girls were playing to sort of make the finals and our boys, they went out, they were senior boys and I remember they got smacked by a good 80 points and they just put themselves on the paddock just so we could um, run to them finals. We were rough patches there. We had no juniors, um, so nothing was sort of filtering through as well. So I think we've come a long way. I think that comes back to the committee and, and the volunteers around the club. If you've got good people that are passionate and, and for the right reasons and draw on them connections, you're going to succeed. It's a place for league tag, so women, a place for them to go and feel safe. Like I said earlier, we didn't have the rugby league opportunities. When you look at it now, you see, you know, from the little ones up to the seniors, they just feel a part of something. It's a lot of the girls' safe place. I know within our club, a lot of the girls that are involved in in the in the club, are, their fathers have played, their grandfathers, their uncles. Their, you know, I was privileged enough to run alongside my mum. It's very positive, I think. Within it too, we do a lot of fundraising for community stuff. For years, we fundraise for can assist. I don't know. It's a very for the community. It's it, I hear nothing but positive stuff. You know, since I've been around, I know within black and whites, we've been competitive since day one. We've always there for the finals. But it's not just about that. It's just we're a part of a, a, a family. You know, I refer to footy clubs as family. It's just a good place for everyone to get along. You know play the football but help around the club and do a lot of activities and it's it's you build friendships is the main thing is if someone's walking away with a smile you know you've done your job there's plenty of opportunities for women in league now so this is sort of a stepping stone for a lot of the women and girls if they've developed the skills within league tag stepping into rugby league will be a lot easier for them so it's a, a passion like pop said you know you're retired for a long time so think about it when you do retire you're retired for a long time so i'll hang in there a bit longer the league tag team of the era squad was named, with the final team to be announced at the 100-year celebrations in June 2022. The squad named was... Marley Campbell, Tanetta French, Marta Varicia, Rosalind Simpson, McAleese Toga, Shailen Williams, Sarah Wade, Bobby Gulagong, Ashley Penrith, Maggie Townsend, Emily Johnson, Yumai Saru Vita, Lily Bell Missaloy, Carolyn Williams, Nicolette Crow, Mandy Meredith, Jada Anderson, Bianca Sutton, Ruby Leosevi and Holly Penrith. Coach Charlene Williams. The senior coaching merry-go-round continued with one-year terms completed by Paul Lawrence, 2008, Logan Wright, 2009 and former Premiership player and wonderful servant of the club, Steve Parr, in 2010. Ben Mann was appointed coach in 2011 and again the following year with Glenn Borger as co-coach as the club started to struggle with numbers, while the league tag were playing a major part in keeping the club going with its success and enthusiasm. There was a significant change to the landscape of Junior Rugby League, with the teams being split into teams affiliated with either Griffith Black and Whites, Griffith Waratahs and Yenda. The Black and Whites Committee considered a number of options to try and create some revived interest and identity. Negotiations between the two clubs, led by Senior President Steve Parr and Junior President Joe Sergi, ultimately agreed to include the Panther name and design a revised club logo. Craig Hannon, who had played at the club's 1990 Premiership side, took over for the 2013 season as coach that turned into one of the toughest seasons the club had experienced in over nine decades. Craig O'Keefe, who became president in 2014 
and still is today in 2022, explains the dire situation the club was in during the 2013 season on and off the field. I became involved with the Black and Whites of 2012. I think my um, son was playing under-16s and then under-18s. 2013 year was a particularly poor year for the Black and Whites. I had a league tag side and a uh, first-grade side all we had by the end of the year and most of the way through the year we were lucky to put a first-grade side on the on uh, any away game. Things were looking pretty crook and um, I'd never been a Black and Whites person myself. I knew that years gone by they'd been a very strong and powerful club over the years and pity that it had got to that stage and... Um, Got on the committee when my young bloke was playing there and um, had a crisis meeting with um, Country Rugby League representative David Skinner come over one night, asked him the question. I said, you know, how can we possibly be competitive? We, because of the poor gates and everything we've been getting and poor, poor canteens, we'd had very low finances and very little income. Dave said to us, uh, you don't need a lot of money to buy players. He said, if you create the right culture, you'll have... Uh, players wanting to come play for you. I thought, oh, that's, that's a bit iffy, but anyhow, we decided to go with that approach. Um, I had, there was other murmurings in the club, the president at the time, Stephen Parr, some people wanted me to take over the role. There was a bit of lobbying going on in the background for me to do it and that, and I thought, well, the best thing to do here is to, I went in front of Stephen and said, this is what's going on, and he said, mate, I'm only too happy to help you do it, which he did, thankfully he did. So um, that first year that I took over in 2014, we had a, uh, a movement happen at the Griffith Leagues Club, our major sponsor, and many years, since the 50s, board of the Leagues Club has set up of, uh, the board has to have uh, five members from the black and whites on the board. There was a motion passed at the AGM, that to be dissolved and uh, opened up to the floor for all the directors of the club. This we felt wasn't the right thing for the Black and Whites and particularly as the Black and Whites had started the Leeds Club off. You know, they, they were the ones that purchased the old house on the site where the Southside Leeds Club is originally and, and it kicked it off. Anyhow, so there was a uh, huge attendance at this AGM. We were successful in winning the vote and stayed majority of power on that board. Makes that much difference to the running of the club anyhow because the people, the directors that are on the board, along with myself, are all there for the Leeds Club anyhow. But yeah, we had a lot of work to do there to get all the old Black and Whites people out to uh, come and vote for us, which they did. Successful in doing it. That was my first introduction to being a president of a football club. <laughs> I didn't realise I was taking on that sort of stuff. So anyhow, Steve Parr was a great help getting that all sorted out with me. So yeah. The recovery mission started with Steve Parr in talks with David Milne, a former Black and Whites junior who had played 52 games at the Canberra Raiders. Craig O'Keefe explains. Stephen Parr already spoken to David Milne, ex-NRL player and local junior of ours that had been playing in the NRL. And um, at that time, I think he was playing Q Cup in Queensland something, somewhere, but he wanted to return home with his family, which he did. And we, um, we'd already, uh, Stephen had already teed him up to be the coach for that year. So he was a bit of a draw card for us. But we also changed the culture around and, um, you know, we had, a, for want of a better word, a no dickhead policy in the club. Just created a better culture. And we had, um, you know, mates of Milnes that he'd grown up with that wanted to come back and play with us. And that sort of got the ball rolling for us. Yeah, we just continued on with that culture ever since and we've never had a great deal of money to offer yep. better players but we've always offered them opportunity to have a good time and um, enjoy their football most of our club we thought I think I've uh, realised that's uh, not just a, a selling line but uh, something that was factual and um, that's where the family culture that we've built up in the club over the years has come from. The 2014 season started with the first up win at Yanko. That was the perfect start after finishing last the previous season. There was to be no finals action, but the club was on the way back financially and with increased supporter base and playing numbers in all grades. It was growing along quite nicely with good numbers in all playing ranks. David Milne stepped aside as coach in 2015, but stayed on as a player under newly appointed coach Craig Morris. Another recruit to the club was Andrew Lavarka, who would over the next few years build a strong relationship with Morris and the community. 
Lavaca explains how he ended up at the club. My missus was playing for the Black and Whites at the time. I was keen to come on board, but I just didn't know if the club was keen. You know, we set up a meeting and I had a three good mates that were still at the club as well. And his name was jo- uh, Joshua Charles. He was basically the reason why I came to the club as well. I had this uh, meeting with Craig Morris, Craig O'Keefe. Everything that um, they spoke about, something that it seemed like they were building, they really wanted me. So that's, yeah, that's how I came about um, with the 2015. Morris and Lavaca would join forces as co-coaches for the next two seasons. And as Andrew Lavaca explained, he bought in immediately to what Craig Morris believed in and worked on that got the side back into a finals appearance. Craig Morris was massively heavily involved in culture. A bit of self-belief in each other. Previous years, they were struggling to have that within themselves. Like, the talent was there and within the club. I think they just didn't have that experience and I suppose that self-belief they had in each other as players. And Craig um, talked a lot of sense within the players as well. He'd always had belief. He always backed everyone. You know, if it was a result or if it was a loss, he still backed each other's everyone's ability by whatever it is that he worked on. Yeah, he just really, biggest thing was culture building towards within that year. And you could just see it with everyone. Everyone wanted to play for Craig, two gentlemen that wanted to be a, around at the club. And that's why I, yeah, it was really good. Um, those things that what we worked throughout the year, we had a lot of bonding sessions together. We had a lot of camaraderie stuff together. And it was, it was just great to see that everyone wanted to buy in, even though we lost or won. It was just, yeah, great feelings of, of, of that season, I think, um, building around a big family-based culture within black and whites. Craig, up until today, they, they still think he's a father figure to him. He says the right things at the right times and he, he helps you when when you're needed and um, he lifts you as well. It's just not about rugby league, things in general in life. And that was the, the beauty about Craig Morris. He's, yeah, he would never be forgotten at our club. He's, yeah, he was a really, really good you know, mentor having around the club that, that year. It all came to fruition in 2017, with the Black and Whites breaking a 19-year premiership drought to claim the Group 20 title at Griffith Rugby Oval against crosstown rivals, the Griffith Waratahs, 28 points to 10. To cap off a great day, the club's under-18 side defeated Yanko Amun 28-22 to win just its second title in the last 40 years. Club president Craig O'Keefe reflected on a few funny stories from the celebrations. One after we won that 2017 Premiership, um, Andrew Lavarca and his family had decided to cook a couple of pigs on the Mad Monday afterwards. And um, so they had a, a fire in the, an old shed down the back of the um, Solar Mad Stadium, or Dog Ground, as a lot of people would remember it, on the concrete, and they put a sheet of corrugate dying down and lit this fire the celebrations in the morning as you do on a mad monday next minute i heard this loud huge explosion bits of concrete went flying everywhere and i've um, i've gone storming over there and what are you idiots done you know and they're all standing around looking in total shock at me and what what had happened and um, what had actually happened was the fire got the concrete that hot but the concrete exploded underneath it and um, so um, I had to apologise to them all for accusing them of all being idiots but plenty of uh, those sort of things that went on and was I don't know whether it was the same day or later that night or locking up the grounds afterwards and um, I went to lock a shed up there that we kept all kept all the or still do keep all the goalpost pads and tackling pads and everything in and I thought I heard something moving in this shed as I went to lock it up and I thought I better just check it here there's a bloke asleep in there I'd have locked that shed up he'd have been in there until the next season 
The Premiership glory did not look likely after losses in the opening two rounds of the 2017 season before a thumping 50-24 victory over the Waratahs in round three got the black and white machine rolling into a genuine Premiership force. The black and whites finished minor premiers, then accounted for Waratahs 21-20 in an epic major semi-final to advance to the grand final. Playing in front of their home crowd at Solar Mad Stadium, the side, led by player of the match, Cody Charles, outclassed its fierce rival. The victory was driven by the amount of hard work and the belief built up over the previous years within the club. As playing coach Andrew Lavarca explains, while president Craig O'Keefe was full of praise for Morris and Lavarca and the work they were able to do. Having the 2017 where we started, basically we're just building off from 2016, but we also got a few good fruits on deck as well. I think the passion was the club, but also for each other. The year before, we just built really, really good uh, family and brotherhood and stuff like that. And we just backed it up into the, to the next year by wanting to drive to be better for everyone. A lot of courage within each other. We had a, and we had that belief that Craig brand. The belief was building, culture was building, the families were building, and everyone started to become really tight and you can see that within each other's um within each other and the boys because the dedication showed you know you feel the training and they rocked up and they had a dig and, and then they just got in there and got it done building that you know the previous year we were short but we kept fighting to live for that next success which we we were all excited for that 2017 i don't think there was an end goal like the premiership to be honest we'd always focus on the week in week out because that was important to us you know coming arm together and you can see someone else is running that track training session and then he was leading it and then everyone wanted to challenge that. That was the passion in each other. Again, at the start of the year, the end goal picture was the premiership, but we never fought ahead of ourselves because we knew how good of a, of a side we was in paper, but we still worked really hard. Both uh, Craig Morris and Andrew Lavarca had been very good to our, or for our club. Um, have that culture at the club there that everybody's equal and um, everyone is respectful and gets respect in, in return for it. So it doesn't matter where you come from and you, we've got probably the greatest mix of cultures that everybody's welcome at our club. You know, we've, we've had many different cultures or nationalities playing for us from all the Polynesians, Aboriginals, Indians, Italians. The Italian thing goes back to nearly the start of the club. We've always been welcoming and tried to not only help people on the football Field, but help them off the field as well. So, you know, we've uh, found employment for people, whether it's through the lease club or around town through our sponsors and businesses. We've always been successful doing that. So I believe that helps too. You know, if you can help people out off the field with their own life, it's uh, worth more money than what you can pay them in match payments. Lavarca coached again in 2018, but was unlucky to suffer a knee injury that plagued his and the side's progress as they lost the first semi final. In 2019, Steve Broom was appointed as co-coach alongside Andrew Lavarca, with the team narrowly missing the finals after a slow start to the season. For the 2020 and 21 seasons, Andrew Lavarca was joined by his brother, Halifurl, who had returned from playing NRL with Parramatta and Manly. The 2020 season was abandoned due to the COVID-19 worldwide pandemic. Determined to see Rugby League return to Group 20 in 2021 after the cancellation of the previous season, the competition kicked off based on a 14-round fixture. The Black and Whites had recruited well and went into the season extremely optimistic. After suffering defeats in its first three rounds, the side eventually found winning form that kept them in touch with the leaders, Leeton. 
A great stimulus to the side's title hopes was boosted when they hammered Leeton 37-16 in round 10. A convincing final round thumping of Tullabajeel Lakes United rocketed the black and whites to top spot on the ladder on percentage over Leeton. With no final series played due to New South Wales COVID-19 health order restrictions, the black and whites were awarded the minor premiership. Andrews Lavarka's season was outstanding, being crowned Group 20 Player of the Year award. As part of the 100-year celebrations, the club appointed a group of former players and officials to name a Group 20 Team of the Era, 1954 to 2021. The selectors have named a squad of players for each position on the field. The final team was announced at the club's 100-year reunion dinner in June 2022. The squad nominated for final selection was fullbacks Laurie Moraski, David Milne, Bill Jaffrey, wingers Peter Brennan, Don Grant, Alan Ebert, Keith Giddy, Tony Payton, Fred McNabb. Centres John Kelly, Cole Ratcliffe, David Fanati, Chris Clearhan, Robin Gason, Terry McCartney, Steve Gilliard, Peter Caserli, Wayne Alpin, Ross Morell. Five eights Cole Kavanagh, Chris Marlin, Brian Clay, Des Paget, Seth Spence. Halfbacks Jeff Hoy, Skin Cameron, John Caserli, Rob Adamson, Dwayne Amaro, Chris Brennan, Frank Byrne, Neil Doherty. Lock forwards Greg Hay, Reg Cooper, Don Hassan, Bruno Rosotto, Terry Burthen, Mick Pittman. Second row John Benetti, Terry Regan, Don Hay, Graham Montgomery, Kevin Oliveira. The front row Seth Bull, Albert Paul, Don Matheson, Stan Gilliard, Len Jamison, Noel Ingold. Hookers, Simon Bonetti, Bill Brown, Kerry Gallagher, Don DeSetta. So there you have it, 100 years of the mighty Griffith Black and Whites. For the final word, it's 2022 coach Andrew Lavarka and the current president, Craig O'Keefe. This club's made me love the game even more. I've got that opportunity to do what I'm doing today at the Griff Black and Whites is because it's made me grow as a person and as a leader. It all comes back to loving the game. A lot of people don't understand about today's game. You know, you're in a game because you love it. If you don't have any more love for the game, what's the excuses that you're still doing around a club? And the club at Black and Whites, that's what it really means to me because it's kind of gave me the love and the joy of the game because you learn and about histories and stuff like that of the club. You know, you learn and you meet new people and you grow. It really means so much to me because I just, it's made me love rugby league even more as a club. It's a good vibe that you have a hundred year history and to be around it as well, it's crazy. But even the club in general, they're doing so much behind it. I know there's going to be so much people at this reunion, you know, and it's just, it's crazy, you know what I mean? Because sometimes when you sit back hundred years, you know, all these people, and it's memorability stuff, it's history. Oh, it means a lot to me um, and my committee. I've always made sure they're all aware that the onus is on us to make sure that uh, we don't only try and win premierships, that we try and keep the longevity of the club going. We've got uh, responsibility there now of 100 years and we want to try and make sure it's around for another 100 years. The club's uh, made a, the committee made a decision a few years ago that we try and work as closely as we could with our junior black and whites club to try and help 
prosper them as much as we could because we believe that they would uh, follow on through natural course of they'd end up playing for the seniors which and that's starting to pay fruition now where we've got under 16s and under 18s and all the other three grades so we've got five grades in total and the junior clubs chock-a-block with kids you know it looks really good the, the future for us so yeah Well, there you have it. 100 years of the mighty Griffith Black and Whites Rugby League Club. Brought to you by the team at Glory Days Podcast. A huge thank you to the support and passion of the past players, current players and officials of the club. And finally, to the wonderful support of the club's proud and loyal sponsor, the Griffith Leagues Club, for making this episode possible.